When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Y'all ain't never heard of knocking for you in. Well, I, actually, we had an invitation, didn't we? Yeah, how did you know? Yeah, yeah, it came in the shape of a bottle. We're from the Kingsman Taylor's shop in London. Maybe you've heard of us. Oh, I've heard of you, all right. Just save it for the review, Josh. Taron Egerton with Channing Tatum in a clip from Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the sequel to 2015's Kingsman, The Secret Service, both adaptations of a popular UK comic book series. The first film's ultra-violent take on a Bond-esque spy agency divided critics. For this week's show, we caught up with the first installment for a review of the sequel. That plus Adam's conversation with Koganada, director of the critically acclaimed new indie, Columbus. All that and more. Manas maketh movie. Ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Last week on the show, we shared the Film Spotting 5, our latest installment in that series, the director Kogonada with his answers to those questions, which you can find over at filmspotting.net. We saved, though, the bulk of the interview for this show. And, Josh, I just came right out of the gate. Let's just dive into modernism. Oh, nice. It's on everybody's mind right now. Yes. It's it's so hot. Especially after sitting through the Kingsman films. (laughs) That's it. There's so much in common. I can't wait for you to make that connection as we get to our review here in a moment. We will hear my entire conversation with Koganada, his new film, Columbus, we reviewed very favorably on the show a couple weeks back. It is currently a Golden Brick nominee. First, though, my preparation for Kingsman, The Golden Circle, did indeed involve catching up with the first film and then doing my best to wipe it from my memory. I thought that was only fair to Golden Circle. Let's see if the tactic paid off. The Kingsman. Kind of got a bit of a save the world situation here. Welcome to Statesman. As your American cousins, we'll be working side by side. Let's get started. We've got brains, skills, skipping rope. It's a lasso. Whatever. I knew that watch would come in handy. I just set it to amnesia, and I shot it at you upon your request. Thank you. And you more or less forgot everything about the first Kingsman movie. 
you must have forgotten it immediately after the review because you really had almost nothing to say about it over at Letterboxd. The sum of your review, Josh, one sentence. We'll get to that here in a moment. We did hear from a few listeners on social media and over email about our kind of dismissive take on the first Kingsman movie last week when we were teasing this show. And I suppose it's dismissive. We were just saying we didn't really care to see the first one. We never did see it. And we weren't really anticipating this film. And then we thought, okay, we're going to jump into the fray here and see what all the fuss is about because the first Kingsman movie did seem to really rile some people up while others went surprisingly for them a little nuts for it. So we got an email from Rob Pollard in Perth, Western Australia, who said, I heard your comments on the Kingsman and understood where you were coming from. A friend took me to Kingsman in the cinema and I was perplexed by it. About a year later, I read this article by film crit Hulk and revisited the film. I could engage with it on a whole other level. He just said whole other level. I don't even know whole what that nother. is. Whole nother. It, Come on. I mean, let's get it right. Maybe that's better. how they say so much it clearer in now Australia. In Perth. And I enjoyed it much more. I thought I'd share it with you to see if it helps. So I clicked on the link and I got about two or 300 words into this review. And I hate to be dismissive about someone's review, but I found it actually more unintelligible than I found the first Kingsman film. I scrolled down to discover that I'm not joking. It's probably about 20,000 words or at least you, 15. you see my eyes glazing over. right so it may have some i totally brilliant insights i couldn't it. sum up 20,000 no, I mean, words on kingsman that's longer that's longer than we do this show that's like three shows put together so i couldn't really dive in rob i was hoping that i would read it i'd find some really great points and i'd hit you with them, Josh, and we could respond to them and have this really intellectual discussion about the Kingsman movies. We're not. We're going to instead start with the question everyone asks when they see a sequel. Is it better than the first one? And it almost has to be based on your reaction, because I did see it on Letterboxd over the weekend. Just one sentence. Nothing in this movie means anything. And it was accompanied by a star rating. And we've been working together now for how many shows? We go back to what, 2012? Early 2012. 250 maybe? Over five years doing the show together. And yeah, somewhere in the late 300s. I think we're, we're approaching 300 shows together. Okay. I don't recall seeing a half-star review. Oh, they're out there. Okay. Yeah. But, but since you've been here? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We'll you know, have to there, check the a handy, website. There's a handy filter on the website. You, just, you can look by half-star so reviews. So while you talk, I will... Do me, that search. Tell me what my other ones are. At LarsonOnFilm.com. <laughs> There's nowhere to go but up. Was the Golden Circle a more pleasant experience than the Secret Service? Yes. Yes, it was. It was, wasn't it? Adam, yeah. And, and maybe we'll start with the reasons for that while also stating out of the gate that this is largely an abysmal experience. Ooh. Uh, I don't think we've made much progression and there's maybe one sequence in particular where it almost – undermines any of the joy that I was having hmm. at all. Okay. Um, Can't wait to hear it. Taron Egerton uh-huh. as the lead here yes. is growing on me. There were he flickers should. of charm in the first one. It he's was a just overwhelmed by all the other nonsense going on. And here he's given a little more room to breathe. It's maybe more his movie mm-hmm. because the character sure. is coming to his own. He's got some nice comic timing in the scenes with Mark Strong. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see why this young actor was mm-hmm. selected for this part and he can he can pull it off. So 
I did like that. The supporting cast that they've put together, well, let's just say Channing Tatum is mm-hmm. fun, as we knew he would be, especially because, yeah, he gets the dance scene we were hoping for, yeah. but it's purposely bad, right? Like, <laughs> I joke with you. If you want to see Channing yeah. Tatum dancing badly but amusingly, this is your movie. I knew that as long as it had a Tatum dance scene, you'd be somewhat favorable. Yeah. So right there, it's already better. So there's some good scenes. I mean, we should say maybe plot-wise that... Ah, this why time bother? they have an American counterpart. Well, a, a lot of like even Debbie, who watched the first film with me, is like, "What is Channing Tatum doing in there? What is Jeff Bridges?" Doing? And so the shtick here is mm-hmm. that there is a secret agency in the U.S. similar to the Kingsman agency, mm-hmm. and their cover is a whiskey distillery. And so these two groups come together uh, to fight. We should also say because I think she has a few funny moments. Julianne Moore as the Bond-esque supervillain mm-hmm. here, a drug dealer who has this extensive plan to make – to legalize the drug trade essentially. That also involves you know potentially killing what? Maybe half the world's population, something yes. like that, similar to the first film. So um, I think that – I think I'm done with what's good about it. <laughs> That's it? I think so. I mean the, the action – I know people love the action but for me it's – the CGI is – incorporated in a very flat way. It's the sort of CGI where anything can happen so nothing matters. Yeah. Uh, there's no sense of danger no, or there fear really in any isn't of these ever. scenes. And what you're also, saying is, Josh, there's no stakes. There's No, there aren't. And there's also no uh, sense of amazement when something, you know, supposedly surprising happens. Mm-hmm. When they escape, it, it's nothing, it, it, nothing matters in this movie. That, that goes down to the technique. It comes down to the philosophy. It comes down to, okay, here's another thing that I did like better. Um, in the original, none of the characters even really mattered. They didn't even bother. Right. There was some class issue stuff mm-hmm. going on. Here, I think there are pauses where the movie recognizes yes. it. And in any movie that is going to deal in wanton death, all I ask is that it makes a little room for loss. And the Golden Circle, a very nice early scene with Egerton remembering the Colin Firth mm-hmm. character who died in the first film. Spoiler. Well, he's in the trailers for the second. So I guess it's not a spoiler. He pauses to fight back any sort of sentimentality. Mark Strong also has a nice line where he says, after the mission is complete, mm-hmm. then maybe you can shed a tear. Right. At least and we get a nice little might... joke out of that later. Yeah, and, and there might be a reason for shedding a tear. Okay. Mm-hmm. The the. That is a huge move forward, even those I agree. those are only two moments. And I don't know how much this movie really believes in them because I've been trying to think about why did I not want to say anything else about the first Kingsman? Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, it's not fair to the film, right? I should come up with more. And I, I just didn't want to be in that world anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the relentlessness of the violence, the giddiness of of the violence, the only way I could describe it, and there is still a lot of that in this film, is that the sensibility so far of this series is is pro-death. And that's different right. than just having violent content. Sure. Um, it's, it's a difference. It's not a matter of content. It's a matter of attitude towards the content. Right. That is lessened just enough here to make this a bit more bearable. Yeah, I would say, actually, it's a lot more bearable. And I didn't hate the first one as much as you did. I haven't decided on my star rating, but it's going to be higher than half. It's even going to be higher than one, though I'm not favorable on the movie. And I've been thinking what the case for this film, the first Kingsman movie, really could be, because all I've seen from people on Twitter and stuff is, well, it's fun. 
And you know what? I didn't really find it to be fun. And I get the joke of the film at the end. Actually, there's a visual gag that sums up the experience of watching the movie or the philosophy behind the movie. It's that audio cassette. There's music playing on what seems to be an audio cassette. And as the camera pulls back, we see that it's actually kind of like a screensaver. It's an audio platform playing on an iPad screen. And so it's this classic spy movie, this antiquated type of movie, a silly James Bond film in the Roger Moore vein, but revved up with all the latest technology. And as you said, that thirst for violence, which like you, I think I just sort of inherently find distasteful. And this movie decides to push that level of distaste to true vulgar levels. And there's a part of me that can appreciate some of the tricks visually, the camera technique, whatever they're doing with it, where it makes it seem as if the whole thing is unfolding in an unbroken take. I can appreciate Except the, that it's so obviously not. I know. Like it isn't even I know, but you're slick right. in its trickery. I think that it's not meant to make us think that it's truly unbroken, though. It's drawing attention to the fact that it is a camera trick. And I think that there's a part of me that can appreciate it. Those different perspectives we see the fights from, some of them I felt like I've never seen before. So I guess credit to them for trying something different. There's also a part of me, Josh, that hates being too mad at a movie for beating me down as a viewer with violence when that's clearly kind of the point of the movie. I mean, Vaughn just embraced that right from the beginning, and he's begging you to call it ugly and mean and vile. I hate giving in to that. They also build the concept of rage into the actual plot of the story. So he has all those barriers there to protect him. But the movie isn't fun. And the action scenes are not only overbearing and distasteful, they're mostly incomprehensible. I rewound the opening scene watching it on DVR at home of Kingsman, the Secret Service three times. I'm still not sure what happened in that scene. And that's true for most of the big action scenes in that first film. This is the attack on that compound. It yes. looks to be somewhere, I forget where the actual location is, but uh, a desert yes. country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, but it's, it's trying to wow you by the yes. camera swooping in through a window and everything, again, flat is the word that keeps coming to mind so that you're not impressed. Right. Because you're just soaring through nothingness. I know. But Even though I didn't like the movie overall, Egerton grew on me a lot earlier, it seems, than he did on you. I like Firth quite a bit. I remember when I saw the trailer, the one thing I thought was novel about it was, wait a second, Colin Firth really is going to be this this badass spy? I kind of like that concept. kind of going Neeson a little bit. Sure, except he's still Colin Firth. And there's a big difference physically between him and Liam Neeson. I do like, and don't get me wrong, Josh, it's not like the movie really is making a serious point here. But it did, even that first one. Amidst all that vulgarity, it made me think just a little bit about what it means to be a good man in society. It did in that relationship between Egerton and Firth and kind of what they're fighting for. So there was enough there to redeem it a little bit more anyway than what you got from the film. This one, though, I agree with you on everything that you did praise, including I think the action scenes are much clearer, much more enjoyable, even though they're using, for the most part, the same technique. They've dialed it back a little bit. It's just a little bit more restrained. And in terms of the distasteful violence, only about 17 people lose their heads here or get sliced in half, whereas it's really probably about 700 in the first film. So talk about restraint. Okay, but again, for me... It's not a matter of body count, right. really, because I can. you could point to and call me a hypocrite and say, hey, here are films you've praised where hundreds no, I of get people it. have been killed. For me, it's the level of glee in depicting yeah. those deaths, and I think that is restrained a little no, bit here, too. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. think I agree with you there in that it's a little bit of both. The fact that there is some restraint overall with the violence suggests to me that there's 
something a little bit more serious, a little bit more grown up, frankly, about this movie. And that is echoed in the Egerton character, who, as we see from the very beginning, is a more domesticated character. And by the end, he certainly is in a different place and even more mature place as a character. So I thought that overall fit. And I think maybe because this time, too, I thought Julianne Moore was so much fun, even though she disappears for a good chunk of the movie. She's so much more fun than Samuel L. Jackson in the first movie. And... Tatum and almost everything about the Statesman whiskey stuff, other than Halle Berry, worked pretty well for me. I thought it was entertaining. Yeah, she, she isn't given all that much to do. And then they kind of awkwardly try to make up for it at the very end. Um, yeah. I think, okay, so I like the tactic of of considering what is the good version of this series. Mm-hmm. Clearly there are fans, not just mainstream audiences, but there are critics who have gone for this. And I saw when I did post that on Letterboxd, I did see some people chime in with defenses. And one thing that's been mentioned and I've thought about is that these are satires. Okay, then of what? Well, of the Bond films. Okay, then how? And I'm trying to convince myself here mm-hmm. that there's something here. And the only thing I found that I don't believe in, but I could at least maybe accept from someone else is that these are satires because they take what was worst about the Bond films. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm talking about just like most objectionable about them and amplifying them, yeah. right? And then that, yeah, so that's a like thousand. the sexism, the sure. violence, the killing. And, and then that is in a way maybe poking a hole in the fandom of Bond films or the appreciation of Bond films. Yeah, I don't buy it either, but this ties to what well, I was saying. who cares? Why is that a target that needs to be taken down? Well, and didn't I mean, Mike Myers do it already? <laughs> More or better, less. Much I mean. better, I would argue. But it does relate to what really is the most reprehensible moment here for me. And it's a tiny touch, but I think it's worth talking about. There is a detail where for a surveillance mission, they are supposed to do the Bond seduction thing, right? And this is Eggsy, the Egerton character. He's supposed to go to this rock concert and seduce a contact, right? So again, they've amped this up. The tool he's using is a finger condom, let's just say. That's, what it That's looks essentially like. what it is that somehow has a microchip or something on it. And the point is it has to touch mucous membrane to get the I love how tracking device hey, the movie's this detailed, Uh right? To get the tracking device where it needs to be, inside the body. So is this not, could you defend this by saying, hey, all this is doing is a crasser version making you confront Mm -hmm. what all those Bond seduction scenes are? And in that way, is this really deconstructing and criticizing the Bond films Hmm. and making us ask, well, what were we really liking about those movies? Okay, I could maybe accept that, except, Uh and- we couldn't watch this again. I don't want to watch it again. But I want, I swear, a cut or two after this has been explained in detail mm-hmm. to us, the next shot is of the target from behind where I don't even know if we can see her head. So it's the lower half of her body. The implication being, and I'm not sure how much time is between mm-hmm. when we're described in detail how this works and this shot. But very quickly after we get the targets, this woman, we get to see her from behind, unaware that... Exy is approaching her. There is just something, th- this explicit... I don't know what you're talking about. ...implication. Mm. She's at the concert. They say, we're going to the concert to meet with her. This is how we're going to essentially okay. tag her. Uh-huh. And visually, we get her from behind very quickly thereafter. She's at a bar That's with her back turned to them. <laughs> a very okay. specific choice. that, And here's for me why I don't buy that argument. Because the film is then not deconstructing anything 
but instead simply amping up that sexism. And here it's it's really crass by implying the basic like penetration, like we're just going to this is what we're going to do. And it's okay, And it's funny. Yeah, I, I think more for me. It feels like one of those moments, forget deconstructing Bond or doing anything intellectual, making us think about this stuff. It's really just more about making it feel a little bit more gritty, making it feel a little bit more like yeah, but that's the, not, that's the not real gritty. world that's somehow. Heinous. Yeah, like, well, <laughs> I- implying that you got to stick your finger somewhere that she doesn't want. Later, they do back up and cover themselves. But it's that connection of description and image. We're going to have to have that conversation off air because I, I just don't really know what you're talking about with that sequence. The shot of her at the bar. Oh, okay. I I don't know how that ties back into the moment you're talking about, but I do find it interesting that you're fixated on it. When you look at these two films taken together, that's probably number 27 on the least misogynistic moments in these two films. Well, for me, you can debate what bothers you more than what bothers me. Sure. I'll just say I was more on board with this movie than I thought I was going to be until we got that. Yeah, that one didn't have that same effect on me. In fact, I thought it ended with a little bit of a good visual gag that had nothing to do with actually this kind of power dynamic that you're discussing. But I don't really know where we go from there, Josh. I did think this movie <laughs> was a was lot more fun. Bring that up in detail. No, huh? <laughs> here, this is where the fun word actually applies. In terms of some of that stuff about Bond or any of these other films, I felt like that was just ridiculous in the first one to the point where it didn't add anything when you get that not winking but hitting you with a sledgehammer where you have characters actually saying out loud this is not that kind of spy movie and they're having that discussion i feel like that's pretty lame whereas here instead we get an actual wink at you which is the sort of view to a kill classic score as they go to italy and we get this ski scene and so how many times do we feel like we've seen that in a roger moore bond film but instead of giving us that great slalom down the mountain and a bunch of ridiculous stuff going on there's no actual skiing at all in that entire sequence so i feel like that's kind of a nice little joke on some of those bond films and that worked for me one of the weird things about this movie and i do say weird that's the only word i can really think of though i found it somewhat intriguing is if you look at both films More than the Bond films, where the megalomaniac villains always have some core reason or value behind why they want Mm -hmm. to destroy the whole world, we have two movies here where the villains ultimately do have good intentions in a really odd way. Like Valentine, Samuel L. Jackson in the first one, wants to save the planet. Mm -hmm. He believes climate change is real, and he just has a really terrible way of solving it. And here... I've got no issue with someone wanting to legalize drugs. Her reasons for wanting to do it, pretty valid in right. my mind. Well, and, and the way the movie describes it, too, it's almost decriminalization so that you're not putting all these people in prison exactly. for minor offenses. That's yeah. right. So she has so, really good intentions, again, as I said. And we've been wondering, Josh, which movie, which movie was going to be the first one to openly deal with a Trump presidency. We got it. It's it's a film all yeah. about British spies. Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Bruce Greenwood here as the president is doing a variation, certainly, on Trump. And I think you have to at least acknowledge that they're trying to make some kind of point about, for me, I saw the whole metaphor here about these characters who are suffering from this disease. We won't get into all the plot, but it is tied to their recreational drug use. I feel like a very clear 
analogy is drawn there between those people and like illegal immigrants. I feel like they're treated yeah, very much the same imagery. way. There's imagery that certainly makes you think of that. And they view them all as criminals, regardless of anything else they may know about them. They don't care. All they know is they've done something wrong in their minds. They must be terrible people. They've broken the law. So I did find that a little bit interesting. And we see the only television that the president watches in the office is Fox News, which means they they actually complied with this movie beyond just letting their channel appear on the air they're acting in the movie their news people are acting are in the movie yeah fox news oh yeah people? those are okay. actual fox at least some of them are 100 percent. and i'm wondering do they not do they not get the joke here or are they just savvy or, enough not to care well that, it's that all about money or and, yeah what about this possibility it's not a joke and that some of this is catering to an audience that will agree with some of this. I think, I think the Trump stuff is interesting. I don't know what the timeline is, but I feel like a movie this big would have been in production I perhaps. So, so I, I agree. Think you're right. The law and order stuff, the way this president mm-hmm. is like very black and white in how we're going to deal with issues. And, you know, that that's completely, completely Trump. Uh, it's weird. You know, he has a Southern accent, right? Bruce Greenwood is playing him, but he gives him like a Southern accent. So there are other shades of other stuff. But yeah, sure. going, you know, just politically, this is where this is where I'm back to nothing means anything in this movie, because you could ask these causes. You're right. On the surface level, both of these films now politically could align themselves with the villain's causes, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, is that ironic or is the movie somehow saying these causes are villainous Mm. or does the movie not care? And that's where I'm at with these things. Mm -hmm. They're nihilistic, both of these films. And maybe these are little touches, the Bond stuff we can talk about, these political hints we can talk about. But in the end, it doesn't really add up to to anything for me. No, I would say, though, that the nihilism of it would bother me a lot less if the comic stuff paid off and a lot more of it pays off here. Really, none of it paid off for me with the first movie. Yeah, I know. I I definitely agree. I think this film is also maybe too complicated for its own good, though. And, and these are maybe mundane complaints, but it's they're just other things that are going to be holding me back from embracing it. Maybe more than others will. I think the whole gambit of Firth's return is not handled well at all. Unnecessary, except for marketing reasons. There's also a double crossing plot with a character who's I didn't find interesting at all and kept wondering why are we stuck with him for so long <laughs> because he's because, he's a Burt Reynolds lookalike uh, well, and I thought that was funny okay so there's a one gag but it's not worth all the screen time we get uh, Elton John but he's kind I of mean, a badass maybe, Elton John not a badass sorry hey we saw it together we just came from the screening everybody it. else people in the theater went it. crazy every time he was on screen so what do we know well and maybe two or three little bits with him would have been good, but we get about 18. Yeah, so. there are too many cameos, too many what we see in sequels all the time, though. Actually, I'm saying there weren't too many to derail the film for me, but certainly make me enjoy it less. Those callbacks to the first film. I mean, we get kind of that same bar sequence again with Colin Firth. And yeah. yes, they do have a laugh at the There's expense of that expectation, but it doesn't matter. It just feels like, oh, here we go again. It's got about seven of those moments. And it certainly does seem to be the kind of film where they thought, well, let's just put that famous face here in that scene and see if that gets a reaction out of people. And it feels it feels cheap. So do you want to know uh, one of those other half star reviews? Hmm. Can't wait. It has been. It, it was my punish. Oh, why am I bringing this up? Because <laughs> it's what I had to watch for losing Film Spotting Madness in our second year. Do you okay. remember what film that was? 
I'm drawing six. a blank. Oh, the half star. Six, really? Half star. Yeah. <laughs> Nihilistic too. Yeah. Josh. Uh, well, other problems there. But um, now, now you're going to tell me I still haven't watched the you movie still this haven't year. Watched that. What did we choose? Was it another Sandler movie? I think it was. I another think Netflix it was. I don't remember what the movie was, but Why did I you bring will that serve up? your penance. Why did you I You will that be up? punished for losing Film Spotting Wasn't Madness. was Kingsman, Golden Circle, enough? Come no. on, just let me, just let that be my punishment. No, no, because this was kind of an entertaining movie, oh, Josh. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm pro the Golden Circle, but I'm definitely not pro Secret Service. And you even enjoyed this one more, which means we certainly are wrong and most people are going to hate this film. No, I, I think the audience we were with was pretty happy. They were into it. They were really into it. I'll give you that. Kingsman, The Golden Circle opens in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to stay in the U.K. for Massacre Theater. little hint for you there. Then we'll hear Adam's interview with Columbus director Koganata, whose film is in consideration for this year's Golden Brick Award. Stay with us. We want the cameras, train on the news, on those around. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If anybody else wants to come with me, this moment will be the moment of something real and fun and inspiring in this God-forsaken business, and we will do it together. Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? I think that's pretty much how I recruited you for the show. I just stood up and started yelling, and you were the only one who stood up, Josh, with your goldfish. I was, I was just flustered. And now look what's happened to I me. know. Five-some years later. Tom Cruise, an Oscar nominee back in 97 for that performance in Jerry Maguire, a movie that very well may come up next week when we share our top five Tom Cruise. What are we sharing, Josh? Have we actually settled on a topic here? We talked about performances. We talked about Tom Cruise movies. Yeah. I think I'd kind of like to do performances. A little more granular. More a little work. more I, granular. I see, I see what your expression. More work. It's more work. Well, no, I'm, I'm very much against movies. That seems incredibly boring We're talking to me. about Cruise here. This poll question we've been discussing yes. is specific to Cruise. That's right. So I think we got to narrow in on him. Yeah, we got to talk about grins. him Should as we do a Tom performer. Grins? Ooh, I Just do like that. Or running scenes. We could do either one. I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. That won't have to be a joint top five. There's a lot of options oh, yeah, there. So, yeah, yeah I think we'll probably, we'll probably stick with performances. We will consider 
Cruz's 35-year career inspired by the release of his latest film, American Made, which opens next week. And next week we will have our review of American Made directed by Doug Lyman. Cruz is also the subject of the current film spotting poll. As you noted, Josh, we're asking, when did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? Was it the 80s? Was it the 90s, the aughts, or even more recently? Or maybe you're just really stubborn and you're still taking Tom Cruise for granted, which does, I'm sorry, make you a monster. But it's a little unfairly worded because maybe you were born in the 90s, which most people listening actually probably were, Josh. So they could never have voted for the 80s, and they've had less time to fully appreciate Cruise. Well, it doesn't matter. We want to know roughly at what point you finally took to Tom Cruise. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Already in your podcast feed, if you are a subscriber to the show, our conversation about the fifth and final film in our new Argentine cinema marathon, Damian Cifran's Oscar-nominated Wild Tales, the plot, six short stories that explore the extremities of human behavior involving people in distress. Yeah, that pretty much Mm -hmm. sums it up. You can find out which platforms Wild Tales is available on from our site, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, our partner for this marathon is Mubi. Cult classic independent films from around the world. That's all at Mubi. Everyday Mubi's experts introduce you to a film they love and you have a whole month to watch it. So there will always be 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. Some highlights that are currently playing over at Mubi. Their Berlin School double feature just launched featuring 2000's The State I Am In. It's the debut film from Christian Petzold, who made Phoenix a very good film yes. from a few years ago. And... The City Below from 2010, a financial thriller from director Christoph Hochhausler. The setting is 21st century capitalism, the playing field, glass-walled skyscrapers, and flats. And, of course, they have their new Argentine cinema series going on in conjunction with our marathon. And it closes out with 2015's Damiana Kriggi about a young girl who suffers a tragic fate at the hands of settlers. That does not sound like as much fun as Wild Tales was. But then again, we haven't had a ton of fun with this marathon. There's been some, some heavy subject some matter. stuff, yeah. yes. And we get a little bit of that in Wild Tales as well. If you haven't already downloaded it, we do encourage you to check out that review, our final discussion in the marathon. And we are still unnamed. On a later show, we are going to share our new Argentine Cinema Marathon Awards. We need something in Spanish, obviously. We got some good suggestions on Twitter, but we haven't settled on one yet. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. We really can't give out the awards until we get a name from listeners. That's so true. The whole thing's on hold <laughs> yes. until something brilliant comes in. <laughs> I love the way you're buying time here, Josh, See before we have to do that. We do encourage you to go to filmspotting.net slash marathons to hear all the discussions from this marathon and to see past ones. The entire archive is there. There are also some options. You can click the link for future marathon options and see some of the ones we're considering if we ever get to another marathon. We love these marathons. We know many of our listeners do. Man, they are time-consuming. Time-consuming. They're extra work. And when we've gotten into the habit lately of reviewing things right after a screening, yes. that can mean marathon time is middle of the night almost. Uh-huh. So, yeah, fun to do, 
They are a lot of work. We are going to take a little bit of a break, and we will see where we sit as we consider future marathons. A while back, we had an intern here on the show, a University of Chicago student, Brian Bielak, who now works for the Chicago Film Archives. And as a favor to him, and really as a favor to anyone out there who might be interested, we do remind you that it's that time of year to rifle through your attics, dig through your closets, call up grandma, search out your family's home movies. Can you imagine finding these and actually screening them for people? Josh, Saturday, October 7th. Chicago Film Archives and the Chicago Film Society will host Chicago Home Movie Day. It's an opportunity for people with regular 8, Super 8, and 16-millimeter home movies or amateur films to have them inspected by local archivists and then projected in front of a live audience. The really brave folks aren't looking at these beforehand. They just hand them over. That's what I'm worried about, Josh. (laughs) I don't know if I'd be ready for that as a viewer. Even if you don't have any films to share, you can come out for the festivities. Learn more about the event at chicagofilmarchives.org. For whatever reason, Josh, we have had this spate of listeners over the past couple months who have noted that they are making their way through the entire film spotting archive. I don't know why people just all of a sudden started doing this at the same time, or maybe they're just all emailing us around the same time. But we got another one here, Wade McCormick. And I thought this was worth sharing because he's doing this new trend of going through the entire archive and then pointing out the top five movies that have never come up in the history of the show. Okay. So this is more education for us, more education for some of our listeners, hopefully. Wade says, like a few other people have done recently, I just finished going through the entire archive starting from episode one. Here are those top five movies never mentioned on the show, at least that I can remember. His first year, he says, is a cheat just for Adam. Thank Two you. disturbing horror films with great lead performances. Andre Zulawski's Possession, which I don't remember being mentioned during the top five of 1981 show, but it would be my number one easily. Isabel Ajani won the Best Actress Award at Cannes, and it might be the best performance to ever win that award. The other film is Pascal Laguerre's Martyrs from 2008, which I heard best described as The Passion of Joan of Arc meets The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No movie has terrified me as much as this one, so it's hard to recommend, but I really do think it's brilliant. At number two, a medieval epic from the Czech New Wave, Markita Lazarova. I was disappointed not to hear this one mentioned on the recent Top 5 of 67 show. I was hoping at least one other listener would have recommended it. The Criterion restoration is absolutely breathtaking. At number three, Wade has The Hunt. I was surprised this didn't make anyone's 2013 list. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, and Mads Mikkelsen won the Best Actor Award at Cannes for this film. It's incredible. It was reviewed on SVU, but I don't think it ever came up otherwise. Not even on Scott or Michael's list? Yeah. Yeah, that I feel like familiar, I feel like it somehow got mentioned, though I don't think it made. Mention. Yeah, I don't think it made the end of the year roundtable, the top ten for us or our guests. We never saw it. You no, haven't I caught haven't up with it, it no. and I remember being curious about it and hearing good things about it, but never did see it. Number four. Mommy, you mentioned that neither Adam nor Josh had seen any of Xavier Dolan's films, but I don't think you've mentioned any of them by name. This is his best film, and the fact that Dolan made his first film at 19 and has already made several great ones is remarkable. You can also see him as an actor in Martyrs one year before his directing debut, I Killed My Mother. At number five, Wade has Khan Ichikawa's An Actor's Revenge, one to consider when you get around to your 1963 top fives. It actually doesn't make my top five, but that's simply because it's a ridiculously strong year with Winter Light, Eight and a Half, Contempt, High and Low, and The Silence at the Top for me. Some of the best art direction in any film I've seen. Wade says, thank you for the hours of entertainment and insight, and I look forward to many more. Thank you, Wade, for the great feedback and the great recommendations. We're going to repay you now with some really terrible acting. It's Massacre Theater time. The part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. I'm glad we 
caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. Right. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worried. Well, you got caught with a flat world. How about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. I'm just a sweet transvestite. That's Tim Curry. I know, sounds an awful lot like me. But no, it's Tim Curry as Dr. Frank and Furter with Barry Bostwick's Brad Majors and Susan Sarandon as Janet Weiss in 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Written by Jim Sharman and Richard O'Brien, based on O'Brien's original stage musical, it was directed by Sharman. The Massacre was part of a show that also included our review of It and our top five Stephen King movie scares. We did actually get more entries for this one, Josh than we did even for Talladega Nights a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think maybe hearing last week's new and improved version of Massacre Theater helped thanks to the musical accompaniment we got from listener Andy Colopy in Astoria, New York. And a couple people did comment on that. They entered after we played that last week and somehow hearing the tune, it all came back to them then. Well, so that one got double airtime, so maybe not fair to compare it to Talladega Nights. Andrew Hertz in Miami, Florida had a connection here. From the first line, I knew it was the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and the obvious connection to the top five is the horror of the Stephen King scenes. Also, Tim Curry was the sweet transvestite singing the song and was also Pennywise the Clown in the previous version of It. That's it. Eric Jaworski says both the Rocky Horror and It roles show Curry's twisted side while also showing his over-the-top performance style. You could say he's a bit of a clown in both films. Another weird connection is Floating. During the final sequences in Rocky Horror, Dr. Frankenfurter jumps into a pool and floats in the water as he sings. Spoiler alert. In the movie It, there's an iconic line where Pennywise tempts Georgie into the sewer and says, They float. They all float. And when you're down here with me, fat boy, you'll float too. Whatever it is, Tim Curry must love floating. Apparently, Taylor Cole in Chicago wrote in, This week's musical performance from the Rocky Horror Picture Show was easily the best Massacre Theater musical performance since Best in Show. Which, I don't Best in Show? Oh, yeah. Oh, that, something about the dog. The dog song. That's right. Okay. Which <laughs> to this day, to Taylor said, is still the hardest I've ever laughed while listening to film spotting. Rocky Horror was also released in 1975, the year that the original novel of Salem's Lot was first published. Wow. Then later adapted into a 1979 TV miniseries, which made Adam's list of top five Stephen King movie scares. The Rocky Horror Picture Show also figures heavily into the novel and film The Perks of Being a Wallflower. We are going deep. The writer of both the novel and the screenplay, Stephen Chbosky, has often cited Stephen King as his personal favorite author. And his forthcoming second novel is reportedly an homage to the King novels of the 1970s. <laughs> and last but not least, 2017's It is a theatrical version of a novel with a prior made-for-TV version of it. 2017 also saw a new made-for-TV adaptation of the Rocky Horror Picture Show echoing the prior theatrical version. Version. All the people out there, when they hear Taylor come up with nuggets like that, are they thinking, man, I feel shame that all I had was Tim yeah. Curry? Yeah. Or do they just feel bad for Taylor? Which one is it, <laughs> do you think, let's Josh? hope the former. Okay. Ariel says, the all-American Janet is played by Susan Sarandon, and her former partner, Tim Robbins, is often best remembered as starring in The Shawshank Redemption, an adaptation of a King novella. This is true. Now, if you really want to get convoluted, hey, why not? What do you think we're doing here? A few years after the Rocky Horror film was released, show writer Richard O'Brien co-wrote 1981's standalone semi-sequel Shock Treatment, this time starring Jessica Harper as Janet. Harper was the female lead in the 74 cult film The Phantom of the Paradise, which was directed 
by Brian De Palma, who, of course, went on to direct the film version of King's first published novel, Carrie. Of course. This was a fun email to type, and I can't wait for the next episode. (laughs) It was a fun one to read, Ariel. Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. Ethan McElhinney in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I almost thought you were playing the soundtrack in studio when Adam first started performing. That's right. But when Josh came in, I knew I wasn't being duped but was instead being treated to one of the most perfect massacres you all have given. Please quit your day jobs and take your two-person production of Rocky Horror on the road. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry. Well, you got caught with a flat. Well, how about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. Yikes. Alex Burke in Somerville, Massachusetts writes, I had my suspicions when Adam did his best Clint Eastwood meets Dr. Seuss. <laughs> what, is okay. that? what does that mean? But when the new guy started yelling, well, you got caught with a flat. It's not yelling. It's singing. Alex. I was, was sure singing. that it was Rocky Horror. I was also sure that I would never sleep again. Josh singing that is truly the stuff of nightmares. Oddly, my middle school choir director teacher Agreed. said the same thing. Brett Duville in Alney, Maryland. Good matchup for Adam playing Barry Bostwick's bland Brad Majors, hey. who might well be from Iowa. Man, insulting you in the entire state. Love the show, folks. Thanks for the laughs. Brad the backstory says. I gave Brad Majors to play that scene was that he was from a small town in Iowa. Oh, so okay. So actually, just picked up that's on just it. a great performance that Brett did pick up on. Kayla Morgan in Richmond, Virginia. I have endless good memories with this cultiest of cult classics. You never expect to feel comfortable in lingerie in a dingy theater yelling the word slut until you encounter Rocky Horror. And Josh, that's the only way I'm finally going to see yeah. this movie. I'm going to have to go to the music box some weekend when they're showing it at midnight. I have to have the full experience. I'm not going to watch it at home. Are you going to get dressed if up? If I do, I'll wear does lingerie. That, does that include the only full at home. No, the lingerie will only come out at home. <laughs> That's not very brave of you, Adam. Ben Howarth in North Hollywood, California said, So despite that unique performance, I was able to decipher that you were performing the song Sweet Transvestite from the cult classic Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, despite that rough start, I still think we should make the film spotting version of the classic live Rocky show. Here think we about go. It. We got Josh as Dr. Frank, Adam as Riff Raff, Sam as Brad. Huh. Tasha Robinson is Janet. He's he's switching up the casting yeah, there a little I bit. See Sam that. gets Brad. I don't huh? know how I feel about it. Matt Singer is Rocky. Allison Wilmore as Magenta. Genevieve Kosky as Columbia. Of course, Michael Phillips as the professor. Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias in a dual role as the narrator. And special guest Ryan Johnson as the meatloaf character Eddie. Next live show. Who doesn't want to see Josh in those leggings? Well, with those socks you wear, it's close enough. I I think Adam's (laughs) clearly got the costuming covered. Scotty Milder in Albuquerque, New Mexico here. Adam, you mentioned not reading Stephen King because you were afraid he'd be too scary since you'd seen the movies. I would suggest reading The Dead Zone. It's probably his best book overall and more of a character drama slash political thriller than an outright horror novel. And you mentioned that you're a fan of the Cronenberg adaptation. I think you'd actually enjoy the novel quite a bit. I think I probably would. Also, Scotty asks, was Josh choking on something while he was singing? (laughs) Good question. Don't question my process, Scotty. (laughs) We did, as we said, get a ton of entries as well as a ton of great feedback there. Thank you, everyone, for playing and participating. Josh, reach into that brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Emma, Standring Trueblood from Los Angeles. Love it. She's always had one of the most favorite names here among film spotting hosts. We just love reading feedback from Emma Standring Trueblood. I was actually shocked that she'd never won before because we heard from her in 2015 when she sent us a note congratulating us on our 10th anniversary. She's been listening since episode 14 of the show. 
when she herself was 14. That's commitment. Yeah. Emma. Yeah. And she she wrote in recently. She's in, obviously, her mid-20s now. And you must feel so old, Emma, but not as old as we feel. No. <laughs> Certainly not as old as I feel. Thanks for aging Thinking us. Thinking about you being 14. Incredibly with that story. When you started listening to the show. Congratulations on finally winning Masquer Theater. To claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. So in theory, I'm playing the straight man. Josh, as we get to this week's Massacre Theater scene, I should have the easier part, but I've been practicing and I am stymied by it. Yeah. So You've got have you been practicing? Uh, no, this is, this thing was a joke to begin with. Okay, so inspiration's I, I don't just going to strike. Much. Actually, I think you have as much talent as the actor in this scene. Man, see, now that's that a was hint. a clue. That's a clue. That was a major clue, especially because you see how bothered I am by that comment. Uh-huh. <laughs> Long-time this listeners should be maybe tapping into that. his best. No. Okay. I'll At least that. we can Even agree Even though I appreciate that. him in this vein, mm. we got to stop dropping clues. Okay. <laughs> yeah, everyone just could write in right now. <laughs> I started off. You're going to give me the action, and I guess we're going to give this a go. And action. Well, do you want to do it? That depends. On what? On you? Why? This caravan? Not the rouge, not the rose. It's not the same caravan. It's not the same part. It's twice the effing size of the last one. Mine's twice the size. And my still needs a caravan. I like to look after my ma. It's fair deal. Take it. You're lucky we aren't warm food after your last performance. Buying a tart's mobile palace is a little effing rich. I wasn't calling your mama tart. I just meant... Eh, save your breath for cooling your porridge. Now look, she wants the hacker to roof lights, huh? Decided to ask for and the skirt cushion with the match shake powder covering. Eh? Right. And she's terribly parched to with blue bars. Have I made myself clear, boys? And scene. scene. Adam. I told you I couldn't what? do it. I told <laughs> you, you I couldn't you do it. Like I couldn't do it. Motion. I, I couldn't I couldn't match that that gravitas and the gravelly voice and do an accent. You, you I can't. Were like falling asleep. I need to. I'm glad we made it through the scene. I was worried you would nod off. I need to play Brad Majors. Just more Barry Bostwick. Can we? Can anything, we do anything, more Barry Bostwick? Anything livelier than that? You're in trouble. I am in big trouble. Oh, okay. Well. Good. Good effort. Good effort. Yeah. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 2nd. Winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. I want to show you something. This was one of the first modernist banks in America. Who are you? <laughs> Shut up. I'm just trying to tell you about this building. Why aren't you at the hospital? He was never interested. You don't want him to get better? Maybe not. That's the trailer for the new film currently playing in limited release, Columbus, the feature debut of director Kogonada, whose previous work in film was as a director of some really insightful film essays on Hitchcock, Brisson, Wes Anderson, and many others, including the director who was the topic of our most recent top five here on the show, Darren Aronofsky. The Columbus of the title is Columbus, Indiana, which is home to some of the most important works of modern architecture in the U.S. The movie stars John Cho as the estranged son of a famous architecture scholar who has fallen into a coma while in Columbus for a lecture. Cho meets up with a young Columbus native, an architecture enthusiast played by Haley Lou Richardson, 
Thompson, who is dealing with her own family crisis. She's put her own life on hold to care for her mother, who has struggled with drug addiction. Columbus is also very explicitly about architecture and modernism. Many of the film's carefully framed scenes take place in and around the city's modernist works. And because of the film's themes and because Koganada is a very thoughtful, philosophical guy, I thought we would just jump right in, Josh. Let's hit him with the big stuff right off the bat. I asked him about his relationship with capital M modernism. I just want to set a foundation for the conversation. What is it about modernism as an aesthetic philosophy Mm -hmm. that you're most interested in? Because my only real exposure to it is T.S. Eliot poems as an English major 20 years ago. So what are the applications of it, Mm -hmm. the conundrums of it, perhaps, Mm -hmm. that appeal to you most? You know, modernism is a break from the past. And, you know, if you're a traditionalist, if you uh, embrace the past and you think that we ought to conserve everything about the past, then, you know, modernism might be something to resist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think for me, you know, I understand this break from the past and it's been part of my own experience of trying to find meaning in life. And there's something about modernism that represents this sort of desire uh, to look forward, to find meaning, you know, in this human struggle mm-hmm. of, of absence um, that I find really captivating. I think for me, certain ideas that have tried to fill those meanings up from traditions, whether they're Western religion or Eastern ideas, yeah, you know, the, the, I, I've, I've wrestled. I'm, I think I tend to be very existential and philosophical. And so this has been a, a constant struggle since I was a child. And there was something in modernism, certain pursuits of modernism. You know, I certainly have critiques of, of strands of modernism. But there was something about art, especially, trying to engage this very human conversation mm-hmm. of what it means to be um, human in a modern world, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer for me because that breaking from the past is the one thing I really remember. Mm. And I understand that that notion of challenging the prevailing modes Mm. of whatever art, architecture, whatever might be that, that preceded it. And it occurred to me thinking about this movie that if you're a writer or you're a painter and you're a modernist, that this new mode that you're engaging in can exist on the page or on the canvas completely separate from its history. It can be detached from what preceded it. But with architecture, it only exists within an environment, right? So it's always right up against all the pre-modernist architecture that it's now now part of. So the buildings we see in Columbus are always in dialogue with, or Mm -hmm. they're always in conflict with those surroundings and with each other. So is that something that attracted you particularly to architecture? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I, and I also like the boldness of architects. Uh, even to this day, they still believe their decisions matter. You know, I think in other art forms, there's maybe more humility or maybe a recognition of a sort of postmodern idea that maybe questions a certain kind of certainty. And I think most architects also realize that, you know, but they're also still you know, the, the kind of artists who ask really big questions about their form and believe decisions matter. And the way that Godard did, you know, mm-hmm. who said that every choice is like a moral choice. Yeah. And, and even though I realize, you know, that there has to be some humility to that, I still am drawn to people who really believe those decisions matter. 
So, but in regard to your question, I think that's exactly right. I, I love that architecture is an art form that is placed within the context of everyday life, that we move through it. We don't isolate it in, in a museum or mm-hmm. uh, treat it purely as art object, but it is constantly having a conversation with uh, the surroundings, with everyday life, with history, with all of that. Safe to say then that the characters in the story, Casey and Jen, are both reflections of that dialogue and that conflict as well, because they're both certainly always in conversation, literally having conversations about their environment. But but beyond that, they're always trying to break from their past. We see Casey Mm -hmm. trying to break from the past with her mother Mm. and that struggle Mm. and Jin with his father. Mm. That's right. I mean, I think that's a big part of, again, being modern human beings, you know, we have, uh, you were more mobile. I mean, breaking from our, our families is uh, so much is a kind of condition of the modern world mm-hmm. because people didn't have those kinds of very, uh, personal practical breaks in their history. So yeah, I think they're representative of that. And certainly they are trying to understand, um, their connection and obligations to their past in regard to their own personal uh, lives, but also in relationship, I think, to the spaces that they're encountering Mm -hmm. as well. One of the stated themes of the movie is to question how art affects us or Mm -hmm. can affect us, not just intellectually, but emotionally. For example, can architecture, can a space that was created Mm -hmm. to soothe you or (laughs) perhaps help you heal in some way, can it actually offer that comfort? And I wonder if you had a set answer to that question when you came into the project and then did that change at all or shift at all as you made the film? No, I mean, I had a leaning, you know, my leaning is always towards that possibility. And I hope I never know what that answer is. You know, I hope it's something that is worthy to pursue until I can't ask that question anymore. You know, because I, I do think it's it's a complicated question and I don't think the answer is easy. So there is some sort of belief that art and forms matter to us. And there's some personal belief in that because I feel like it has mattered to me. And, you know, I, I do feel like in my own life, you know, during dark times, during difficult times, um, art has created necessary space, has helped me see the world differently, I think has sensitized me to mm-hmm. difference in humanity. So I, I, I have to believe that um, it matters because it has mattered to me. In an interview, I think it was IndieWire, you said this, if this film fails or succeeds for someone, it's going to be in relationship to that. People who felt so disconnected, it felt like an intellectual exercise, or people who didn't. What did you fear might disconnect people as you made the movie? And how did you, how did you work to combat that as you made the movie? Or did you just decide, I know that that is an outcome and I'm, I'm okay with that? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a sort of balance, a really maybe a delicate balance between people, especially if you're going to make something on the quieter side, there is the challenge that people are not going to fall into the rhythm of it. They might be tired. You know, I've seen Mm -hmm. really great films where I was tired and I did not connect to it. It felt alienating. And then I saw it when I wasn't tired and I, you know, it it really moved me. And I knew that this, this, there was going to be a, a certain kind of rhythm and pace to it that would require some time to get into the world and pacing of it. And if you can't, and, and wh- whether it's it's my fault as a filmmaker, whether uh, there's some kind of disconnect, I think you may, you, you know, you might feel distance. It, it was, it's, it's my, it was a real like, 
deep, deep hope that I could offer some humanity Mm -hmm. and warmth to it, that it wouldn't just be a formal exercise. Um, I have seen cinema that is uh, very formalist, very modern, and I think they're trying to create alienation, Mm -hmm. and I can appreciate that. But it wasn't my intention. You know, this was really trying to marry a, a kind of form that moves me and that I feel is important to cinema with a kind of humanity that moves me and I feel is important to cinema. Whether, you know, I succeeded or not yeah. is, yeah, is I think the individual is going to... It was clear for me anyway that you're trying to engage the viewer in a very active process mm-hmm. and, and forcing us in a way, for lack of a better word, to really look at the frame, mm-hmm. which is an experience I, of course, appreciate, but that goes back to what you were saying in the question about whether or not art and architecture can have that power and whether mm-hmm. or not it can actually move you or or comfort you in some way if if that's what you're looking for casey is a character who despite growing up in this town she could take all this for granted but she forces herself to constantly engage i feel like with your framing with the master shots the wide shots often the long shots we're seeing the the full characters in the frame the way we see the various depths of field the the different objects in the frame you really are it, it seemed to me asking us to look at things that we probably every day kind of take for granted. Yeah, I mean, I, that was a desire. And I think one of the advantages, right, of, of cinema versus life is that it does frame things we pass by and it really can force a certain kind of attention uh, because we don't have that sort of natural framing in, in life. And yeah, so, you know, I mean, obviously space was really important to this film. And I, you know, honestly, I think space is important to all films. And because I think, you know, it also reveals time, you know, if you, without a sense of space and place, it's also hard to connect with a sense of temporality. Mm-hmm. At least this is, you know, my own estimation. But I also think you're right, because it's not, you know, and this is what is true of Columbus as a town, the aspirations are are really big and noble, and, and it makes me love that town. But it's not deterministic. You know, art won't deterministically change everyone. You know, sure. there is a, a relationship with the receiver. And I think in, you know, in Casey's life, you know, she had walked by these buildings all the time, and like most people, didn't attend to it until, f- for some reason, it it grabs you. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I I think that people who have really been affected, there is that explanation where it feels like somehow art grabbed you, or you grabbed you know that there's mm-hmm. some kind of moment, for whatever reason, you suddenly attend to something. And you're right, you know, I think that's the thing about art. You believe that it can, it can matter and change you, but it's also the, the, the receiver of Mm -hmm. that. It has, has agency. Sure. And the, despite whatever intentions were put into the creation, that viewer and how they engage with it, they can have a completely different experience, not unlike watching a movie. Right. right? That's exactly right. So you do come to filmmaking with more of an intellectual background, I suppose we can use that word, from your (laughs) academic experience Mm -hmm. in your video essays. And I think it was that same IndieWire article I read that said that you were working on a dissertation on Ozu Mm -hmm. when you had the realization that you really wanted to be a filmmaker. And I, yeah. I'm presuming that that was the culmination <laughs> of lots of thoughts you right, had yeah. along the way and not just an epiphany. Yeah, yeah. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, part of it was I was a struggling academic, you know, and I, and I came at it from a real 
existential, passionate place, and not necessarily as an intellectual exercise. So I, I, I've said before that I'm, I was sort of an accidental academic because I had these questions that I had about life in general, about forms, and I just kept asking them, and you know, and it just pushed me forward into um, spaces where you can ask questions. But I didn't want to necessarily be an academic. And again, my relationship, let's say, to Ozu is deeply existential, is deeply personal. And once I had to put that down, um, my thoughts down into an academic language, it was really difficult for me. You know, mm. it, it sort of strangled something that I was still trying to understand. You know, it's not as if I had come to some conclusion and I just needed, you know, uh, the form to write it down. I was still asking those questions constantly. And... And then, yeah, the possibility, you know, that you don't let yourself dream it, but the possibility mm -hmm. that I could somehow extend this conversation by making cinema myself, you know, had had been planted in my head, you know, and I couldn't get rid of it. And, you know, I was still, I've, I've always um, been a creative person and I've always made things and I was still making things on the side and had gotten some small commission work. Yeah. And I, I think my brother said like, what are you doing? Cause hmm. you're a creative person, you know, what, what, and you know, and I think that's the catalyst I needed to just say, I, I think I will regret if I do not pursue this, I think I'll regret it. And, um, you know, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. So you're a creative person and you certainly understand film language, mm -hmm. having studied it and having put together these video essays we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. But what convinces you that you know how to run a set <laughs> and talk to great actresses like mm -hmm. Haley Lou Richardson mm -hmm. and great actors like John Cho and mm -hmm. Parker, Posey Parker Posey in there? How do you how do you how do you transfer? I was thinking, too, another way to, to phrase the question is when you're making a video essay. And, and I have to say, I mean, I think this is probably your goal. It certainly comes through with the essays that they're not only an educational experience watching them, but they become their own piece of art. And mm -hmm. you're taking material that already exists and making it into something new. Yeah. You're in complete control, though. You, you have the material. You can do with it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Making a film is, is a different animal completely. And you have all right. those moving parts and moving pieces and moving people. Yeah. How did you adapt to that? How did you make that transition? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit unknown because, you know, part of the nice thing about doing, let's say, a video essay is you can uh, do it by yourself. It's more like being a writer or being a painter and you don't ha need anyone. You can just kind of be alone. And uh, there's a part of me that uh, loves that, mm -hmm. you know. So working in collaboration was going to be a big question. Now, I've done other, you know, creative projects where I've had to collaborate but yeah, this was a big venture, and even my producers had some confidence in regard to my visual approach. And you know, I think they even articulated that we really feel great about that. But I think the um, working with actors was a, a big question. You know, I think part of it, uh, in, in retrospect, now that I have some perspective, because it turned out to be really lovely, and in some ways, it turned out to feel like, oh man, I was born to do this. This is like that's great. The you know, and I. I say that with someone who like worked was trying to do write academic papers with people who were born to write academic papers and I could see how easy it came to them and how effortless it was and how beautiful their prose and you know the way they they worked through that form and there was something about that moment on the set 
from beginning to end that was both humbling, you know, uh, because it was all conceptual for me, but also like deeply satisfying. And there was something about it that felt like I had been thinking and dreaming about it always. And really, yeah. And, you know, when you hear conversations of other directors or you read about great directors, you know, I think people who have that desire to make films, you know, always imagine their own approach or imagine how they might uh, do that. And, and yeah, and, and so I, I didn't find myself like trying to imagine it. It just, I, I think I had thought about it so much. But also, maybe it also helped because our time was really limited. I had really great, generous actors uh, who my producers were wise enough to say, you need to sit down and talk to each of them before we, we cast them. And so we already had a connection. Yeah, and also because they were, like you go back to the video essays, I don't think I've ever, even in those essays, imagined myself as some teacher. You know, I think in many mm-hmm. ways I'm really trying to resist this this idea that I have something to teach someone as much as I do find myself like constantly in the state of struggle or exploration or curiosity. So these forms are, are a way to try to understand something. And I think that this project was very much all of us together trying to make something happen and understand something. And so it felt that way. And so maybe there's something very natural about that. Well, you strike me as someone who just must have run the set as a tyrant. So as long as everyone was listening to (laughs) you and following orders, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Those essays that we were discussing here, and I encourage anyone listening to go to your website, kogonada.com and check them out. And I would say whether you have what you would consider to be an academic, quote unquote, interest in cinema or not. And I would actually say, Maybe if you don't, that should encourage you even more to go watch them because I think you'll find them not only educational, but but moving and, and very enlightening. And when you're putting together an essay that is focusing on how Brisson fixates on hands mm-hmm. or how Hitchcock is obsessed with eyes and Wes Anderson in that meticulous center framing, you're obsessing about other filmmakers' obsessions. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if then when you get on set and you're making this movie, does that make you more self-conscious as a director? Mm-hmm. Are you Are you... Are you fearing that you might be copying in some way <laughs> those masters or fearing that you're not matching them? Mm, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think that I don't imagine that I'm matching anyone. You know, I, I think my, you know, I, I'm starting and um, it's, it is like just an honor to really get to participate in a medium that I love and has meant so much to me. So that in itself feels you know, I mean, I'm just so grateful that I get to do that. So I don't feel like, oh, I am... That's a know, Wes Anderson shot. Yeah, right. I don't imagine that I'm any of of those masters. But I do care, you know, quite a bit about the medium. And I, I think definitely I wasn't trying to copy shots, but no doubt all my shots were, I'm sure, influenced by, you know, I don't know if you, you even know a shot until your head is filled with shots. So I think... All my aesthetics are an amalgamation of of my deep influences, but we didn't try to replicate a shot. You know, there was never like, Mm -hmm. oh, let's make this shot like this shot. But um, I know that I was certainly influenced. I mean, you know, my my tastes or my own personal preferences are definitely influenced by films that um, affect me or, or, you know, move me in certain ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is your approach to framing 
in this movie as intricate and as choreographed as it seems, or is it mostly instinctual? And there are a lot of frames I could pick out as an example, but one that I was just looking at a, a still shot of last night comes to mind where, and I, I wish I knew what the building was that is behind them, but it has a, a sort of spire behind John Cho and, and Haley Richardson, and they're in a wooded area. Mm-hmm. And we see their whole bodies. We see the trees from, from yeah. the bottom up, and we see that, that spire, that kind of steeple mm-hmm. is, is framed between them. We have those layers of depth with the trees and, and the characters. When you're, when you're actually putting that shot together, do you kind of know in the moment what, what you're after and where they should go, or it, it, was that a process? Definitely every shot mattered. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, you know, I talked to my cinematographer, and I did, you know, I had um, certainly collected stills that were going to influence this, the aesthetics Again, not as a kind of copy, but like uh, just to communicate with everyone, you know, we're going to go wide. Mm -hmm. We're going to, you know, this and also have a really kind of clean, you know, uh, lines. And and we we talked quite a bit about that and myself and my cinematographer. And I actually had one producer, Kijin Kim, who is also a cinematographer. He he was a DP for Spa Night, uh, which had been at Sundance a year earlier and also really influenced by Ozu. So it was a really great conversation. So that shot of the North Christian Church, yeah, I mean, you know, we would gather at all the sort of locations and really talk about the scenes, but Mm -hmm. also the framing, because we also knew that we were going to limit coverage so that this frame had to capture our attention during a whole scene, you know, and that often I would cut back wide, that it wasn't just going to establish a scene, but it was going to be the scene. So we talked quite a bit about mm-hmm. uh, the framing. Well, following that, I guess this has become sort of one of my default questions to filmmakers here over the past four or five interviews I've done. I guess I'm, it's just the thing I'm most curious about with directors. The framing, everything you just talked about in terms of going wide and that visual strategy that you clearly had in mind and wanted to employ from the very beginning. Is that the style you applied to this film because it was perfect for this material Mm. and all the things we discussed Mm -hmm. because it's about architecture and how you (laughs) engage with your environment and people in that space? We need to see all those things. Or is it simply your preferred visual style? In other words, Mm -hmm. your next film or Mm -hmm. future films, Mm -hmm. do you think we will see more of that same approach or Mm -hmm. will you adapt automatically to the material? A big part of what dictated this film, both the writing and the shooting of it, was um, really trying to be honest with this question of um, making something that I wanted to see really in 2017, mm-hmm. you know, because we're bombarded by so much possible choice. And I, and so a lot of that is also, like, I just love those shots. And, you know, and I, and I remember saying to myself and, and articulating it to other people, I know if I was watching this movie, I would personally hope so much that they wouldn't cut in yet, you know, that I would want to linger here Mm -hmm. and because I would be drawn in. So I tried to follow this, this cinema in my head that I would want to see. And I also, because, you know, of my, my interest in Ozu and, and really it's like part of my dissertation was trying to take apart Ozu and figure out what it was about his cinema that that felt so haunting, not just as some art object, but but in a deeply, like I really believe he offers a way of being modern in this world that is so meaningful. Like he gives us a way of, yeah, of being in this world. And, and I want to make 
that kind of cinema. I've been trying to think about, you know, part of my desire to make films was like, I thought, oh, there's still more possibility. Not again, not that I would ever be an Ozu or even think I could even get close, but, but just the pursuit itself is worthy. And, and, you know, in that kind of filmmaking. So I don't think I ever was like, oh, I want to be a filmmaker just to make films. Mm -hmm. It very much is, I, I do want to try to understand this medium in a very specific way as it relates to, um, yeah, I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but as it relates to being in this world, you know, yeah. trying to find, and so yeah. I do think, you know, this is a, a this is an incredible medium mm -hmm. that is intrinsically about space and time and being. So there's something about that. So I think all that to say, my instinct is that there's something formally about mm -hmm. that with at least the kind of films I respond to that um, contribute to that. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. But this is film one. You know, I, I used to say on the other side, you know, as I'm like looking at a film or filmmakers, like you never know until you, you see three films of a filmmaker, you know. And so I feel like, oh, I, I'll be curious. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I hope I have an opportunity to make a, a couple more films. Yeah. But yeah. I would imagine that there will be some... Uh, uh, semblance of, sure. of this film. But with that said, it was about architecture. Uh, but, you know, all films have architecture. You know, mm -hmm. there's not one film that doesn't have architecture central to their film world. So I hope, um, yeah, how we approach that. Well, you know, what you're describing is always wanting to be engaged in an active dialogue with cinema, which actually is exactly what we see in your video essays. You said you didn't want it to seem as if you were imposing or handing down some kind of doctrine. The, the essays certainly never feel like that, mm -hmm. and, and this film doesn't feel like that either. I have to ask you about a list. I saw grasshopperfilm.com, their transmissions <laughs> blog. This came out in August. They asked you to name your 10 favorite films of the last 10 years. There are lots of great choices mm. there, including Before Midnight, and I know you've done a wonderful essay on Richard Linklater. And then this one is really what I'm getting at, is The Arbor, Cleo Barnard's film. Gosh, I, yeah. I adore that film. Oh, my gosh. A yeah. past Golden Brick winner here on the show, oh, really? you know, our award uh, yeah, yeah, for kind of yeah. new films and, mm -hmm. and films that really are... are reaching for something artistically and pull it off and you probably don't know this yet but Columbus is already a Golden Brick nominee oh my so gosh. very much very much a contender wow. this year but That's... The Arbor I loved seeing that pop up on this list of course this bizarre but wonderful experimental documentary biopic almost <laughs> about the British playwright Andrea Dunbar who died at age 29 mm -hmm. and you talk about a film that I can see as an influence mm. on, on your work because mm. it's, it's about, it's all about environment mm. and the power of art and yeah. whether or not you yeah. can ever truly escape your environment and, and can art transcend that, that, right. that must've resonated with you. Yeah. I think my criterion for that list was honestly, what films have stayed with me? You know, what films do like you say it and I can feel it even in my bones now. And it's a um, great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a film that from the time I mean, I saw it, I couldn't I could never shake it off. Mm -hmm. I mean, both because it's the way they approach the subject, all the things that you said. Yeah, it lives within me. And I, you know, that has become a kind of constant for me. And, you know, people have asked me, like, what buildings in Columbus, you know, give me your list. And I, I've resisted that. But I do say that there are buildings there that the first time I saw them were not the ones that I thought I was going to respond to. But when I left, they stayed with me, you know, that made me think about it again. And I think that's a great way, you know, it has become a great way for me to really honestly assess 
films that matter because sometimes I'm really impressed with a film right away and in the next two or three days I, I can hardly bring up the film in my mind it mm -hmm. has and so I, I do think well that that means something whether, whether I'm really impressed with every decision I see the, an ability for art to stay with you not just because you like it but you're wrestling with it or, or you do like it so anyways that list yeah. is a real reflection of, of uh, films that have just stayed with me yeah. yeah yeah as I said a great list we'll link to it in our show notes over at Film Spotting. Net. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Your movie was an absolute pleasure to watch. Wish you nothing but the best of luck. Look forward to what's next from you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, it's, I mean, truly an honor to to be here. You know, I, again, like talking about the conversation of cinema, which feels so important to me, and I've listened to your conversations. Uh, so it's really a big honor to, Thank you. to be a part of it. Thanks. You know of all the mess. <laughs> Suddenly, the place I'd lived my whole life felt different. Like I'd been transported somewhere else. My thanks again to Koganata for that conversation. I look forward, hopefully, to having him back on the show at some point. And obviously, we both can't wait to see his next film. Columbus, we remind you, is currently playing in limited release. And you can find a link in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net with some more information about how you can see the movie. And that's our show. If you do head over to filmspotting.net, you'll also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, go ahead and vote in the current Film Spotting poll. When did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? And if you haven't already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Friend Request. You loved the last social media be, teen horror movie you yeah, saw. Yeah, can't be as so good as Unfriended. You're going to be in line for this one. I don't know. A ripoff of Unfriended? Who needs it? <laughs> the Lego Ninjago movie and Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Josh actually liked it better than the first one, which he gave a half-star rating to. I'm, I'm going one. I'm, I'm going, going one so star. far. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. I think right you now. liked it more than that. I'm going, I'm going with three. What are you, what are you basing that on? My, my you chuckles? Were, you were way more positive in our review. Than okay. half star okay. or even one star. I'm going to call shenanigans if you don't give it at least one and a half. I'm pretty confident in one. Okay. Out in limited release, Battle of the Sexes, Stronger, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and the unknown girl, the latest from the Dardens. We do want to give a shout out to longtime listener Josh Youngerman, who is an actor in the movie Easy Living, which opened last weekend in New York City and is currently playing on demand. It's about a self-destructive makeup saleswoman who hopes a new man and business venture will provide her with a fresh start. After those plans are foiled, she takes control of her life in a dramatic turn of events. Josh is one of those guys who I always see whenever I'm in New York and has been listening since he was about 14 years old yeah, I was gonna like say, some others one of the first listeners i was able to meet outside of the show yep. we did that drive-in appearance that's right remember that like the first few months and josh was there congrats josh that's awesome yeah, absolutely next week here on the show we will talk about the latest tom cruise movie american made and share our top five tom cruise we think we're going with performances grins tom grins. cruise grins grinning performances <laughs> <laughs> if you have a favorite you have to do it. Hey, I've been known to drop a Tom Cruise imitation here or there mm. during Massacre Theater in this show's history. So I'm looking forward to this one. This is true. And I believe it was well received. It was. Almost us, as well as Barry. Probably. Send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail and we may use it in next week's show. The number is 312 264 
four. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. You're probably sick of me asking you to do this, but I only ask you because it really does help us out. Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we'll be able to reach some new listeners. Thank you in advance. Our music this week is by London's Dead Pretties. More information is at soundcloud.com slash deadpretties. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.